Headbangers, and welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about singers, guitarists, bassists, and drummers who gave it their all, only to be fired from their bands in an episode we're calling Kicked Out. We're going to discuss their time in their bands, what led to their dismissals, and where they went from there. Some went on to have very successful careers as solo acts or formed other bands, while others fell on hard times. Last week, we discussed albums that we think should be listened to front to back, top to bottom. To hear exactly what we had to say, download the episode from your favorite podcast platform and then slide your finger over to the subscribe button, press it, and then you get to hear our latest episode every time it comes out. All right, so before we get started tonight, I do want to mention that uh, we recently had the passing of a heavy metal icon, a legend in this genre of music, and Johnny Z passed away, leaving behind Megaforce Records and, and, and a legacy that is beyond compare. The man signed Metallica, Anthrax, Testament, Overkill, Ace Freely. When when no one wanted to touch Ace Freely, Eddie Trunk went to Johnny Z and said, "You got to sign Ace." They signed him. He had two relatively successful albums for for the for the label. So I mean, this this is a guy who really had his finger on the pulse of of up and coming metal, specifically thrash at the time. And, you know, without him, you know, who knows where a lot of these people would be right now as far as, you know, bands are concerned. And it's funny to think like it's it was such a small company and but but it had the faith behind all these these up and coming musicians. And even though they were they were tiny, they were titans in the industry. There's so much respect within Within an hour, there were hundreds of people posting, you know, musicians, fans, etc., how much they, they, you know, felt his passing. And that says a lot for the man. You know, obviously his wife passed away a few years ago. Um, you know, hopefully if there is some kind of afterlife, they are there together. And, um, you know, it's it's very sad, but... Uh, much respect to Johnny and everything he did for the metal community. Absolutely. The man lived a life, and he is now, hopefully, like you said, with his wife, uh, looking down on, on the metal scene and saying it's still going good. All right, so kicked out. We're going to be talking about artists, musicians, different people that have been kicked out by their bands. Um, for one reason or another, whether it's musical differences, you know, uh, personality conflicts, drugs, alcohol, whatever you want to call it, we're going to talk about these guys who got kicked out of their bands and then discuss a little bit about what they went on to do after that. Um, you have anything to say about who we're going to be talking about or not necessarily who, but just the, the bunch of people that we're talking about, the topic I mean, the gist is that some of these guys were either, you know, minor members, replacement members, et cetera, that have have some kind of influence on the band, um, or sometimes not, um, but just their career with them didn't last. So we've got guys that were there from the very beginning, guys that were just 
came along somewhere along, along the way. But kind of interesting stories because I think a lot of people, you know, you get attached to a band when you see, you know, the maybe not so much in the modern era as much without having CDs or vinyl, you know, where you would see the images of the band together. And sometimes you'd wonder, like, what happened? Why wasn't this guy along for the whole ride? You know, you love that one album. You love that lineup, the way they sound, everything. And then somebody's not there anymore. So I think it's it's worth discussing, you know. I, I really miss Gary Sharon and Van Halen. You would be the... The, pretty much the only one <laughs> i really don't um okay so our first person that we're going to talk about um i'm going to bring him up i'm dave mustaine um i mean pretty much everyone knows this story but i, I think you can't have a list like this without addressing it absolutely uh real quick dave mustaine joined metallica um as their lead guitar player back in 1982 or maybe late 81. I can't remember exactly how it was. No, it was 82. Um, you know, he went on to record their demos with them. And, you know, everyone kind of knows a story where, you know, Johnny Z, you know, basically signed Metallica and said, Hey, come on out to New Jersey. We're going to, I'll get, I'll get you to record your first album and we'll go from there. And so Metallica goes cross country. They get to New Jersey and they decide they want to fire Dave Mustaine. So, I mean, we don't want to spend too much time on Dave. We kind of know what happened. You know, he was kind of an angry drunk. The rest of the band were happy drunks. And, you know, he was subsequently fired. Went on to form Megadeth as basically his answer to Metallica. And, you know, for what it's worth, it's a pretty successful career. I mean, you can't complain. I'm pretty sure the guy made some pretty good money. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously there was some bitterness there. He, he obviously didn't want to leave the band, um, but you know, what he created a a project that rivaled them on on many levels, and was oftentimes more aggressive. Obviously, sometimes following in their footsteps, and they're they're intrinsically linked together as a band um, or as bands. Um, but yeah, like Dave is very talented musician. Unfortunately, the, uh, substances didn't treat him too well and he went a very different path than his, his, uh, original band. So, um, I think most people know this story. It's, it, you know, I don't think they would have ever coexisted in the long term because of the personalities, etc. Um, but he's gone on to have a very successful career and, you know, more power to him. He's they're gonna re- release another album pretty soon, and and I I love Dystopia. I thought that was great. That was their their most recent release. I I hope it's I hope it's just as good as Dystopia. I mean, look, a lot of people can argue, and there's gonna be you know hundreds of thousands of people on one side, hundreds of thousands of people on the other side. Some will argue that Megadeth is actually a better band than Metallica. Um, you know, I have argued and contended over the years that Dave Mustaine sat in the shadows of Metallica. Um, I think more out of his own insecurities, really, um, for what it's worth. Um, And, you know, there were times where he followed in their footsteps, you know, almost, you know, step for step. 
And then there were times where he would step out of their shadow and do something so good and so much better and then regress back to I'm back in their shadow and I'm going to follow the things that they do because they're successful at this, you know, and, and I've, I've had this conversation plenty of times, you know, that, that mid nineties Metallica and the mid nineties Megadeth were, you know, were just rough on all the fans. But for whatever reason, more people gravitated to that kind of music for Metallica than they did for Megadeth. And bottom line is, in my opinion, was that Metallica did a better version of being alt rock or alt metal than Dave did. Oh, a hundred percent. That that was more of a natural thing where Dave stepped into that, and I don't think he ever should have. Right. Yeah. I don't. I think. I think he saw. And and we we you and I had kind of this discussion about all the thrash bands. In in yeah, they came out of the eighties. Just the other day, we had this discussion. All these eighties bands came out, and they said, "Oh well, you know, this is the style of music now, so we need to do something like this." No, you don't. You didn't. But you, you know, they did, and I would say most failed in 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 a lot of ways. And for other th- other failures, were not necessarily musically, but more uh, behind the scenes, politically and business wise. You know? Yeah. So. But, you know, as far as Dave Mustaine's story is concerned, uh, you know, it's good that he was able to emerge out of that hole that he was in uh, back in 1983, 84, 85 to to form Megadeth and basically be successful. Absolutely. And still successful to this day. So, yeah. Um, I mean, what we saw them last year, right? Yeah. In concert. So that was a great show. Really was. Um, So. I'm going to move on with um, kind of a duo here. Uh, I'm going to go with both of the uh, the first and second drummer for Guns N' Roses. Um, so Steven Adler was the original drummer. Um, you know, he was kicked out of the band fairly quickly, 1990. Uh, so they had only one release technically under their, under their uh, you know, uh, studio releases. <coughs> Sorry. So they really only had one release technically as a studio release, and then they had Live Like a Suicide, and he had one track on uh, Use Your Illusion 1. So not a tremendous tenure with the band, but obviously Appetite for Destruction is their biggest release ever. I mean, no doubt. Um, So basically, the problem was he really indulged in the sex drug and rock and roll lifestyle um he it, more so than the rest of the band obviously a lot of those guys in that scene were really into it but he, that became his all-consuming aspect of life and it wasn't long before they just could not put up with it anymore it took him 18 more years before he got sober um, he appeared on some TV shows uh, on VH1, I believe it was, kind of trying to to get sober. One of the, you know those two thousand shows, celebrity rehab, yeah. So, you know, just a kind of a unfortunate path because he it took him such a long time to even get to where he is now, where he's you know sober performing. Um, but his skills are greatly hindered by the damage that's been done on his body. Um, you know, just a really kind of unfortunate tale. Um, what are your feelings on, on Steven Adler? 
You know, Stephen, I, I like Stephen. Uh, you know, I, I think he was a, a talented drummer or is a talented drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I, the funny thing is a lot of people talk about, oh, his drumming on Appetite for Destruction. Okay. And it's it's so hard to, to, to in, in for me, because I, I analyze albums. I, I, I try to dissect them. And, you know, so what made Appetite good? Well, what made Appetite really good was one, the, the playing was exceptional from all the players. That's, uh, that's obvious. But Mike Klink, the producer, put this album together and basically got these guys to, to you know, uh, put out these great performances in the studio. Also, uh, did it, I think it was uh, Michael Thompson and Steve Barriero, who I think are the ones that mixed the album. So the sounds that they were able to get and, and put it together is what makes that album so classic because of that, the, the cowbell sound, the drumming sound that, that, you know, the snare drum sound that, that that's on that album, just the sound of, of, uh, slashes, less Paul's everything combined. It makes it great. So when you listen to a song like civil war, where the sound is different then you sit there and say, okay, so what, what what was it about this first album? It was was the way it was recorded. It was just the whole experience at the time. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is because, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, well, you know, Stephen Adler made that made Appetite for Destruction. I mean, it, if it wasn't for his drumming, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same. You know, if if Matt Sorum had been the drummer, Appetite wouldn't be the same. I I, I have. I would say I disagree with that about 50% because I think the pro- the production team that was behind that album helped make it sound the way it sounds because those most of those guys didn't, you know, didn't really know as far as what they wanted to sound like in a studio because they were just they were they were new to the studio, they were they were young kids off the street in 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 you know in LA. So Mike Klink did an amazing job of producing that album. So had Matt Sorum been the drummer, I, I think they probably would have gotten a similar sound. I don't think the performances would have been the same. And so that that does that's what bodes well for Steven. Yeah, I mean, the, there's there's no accounting for like you can't go back and change anything. Obviously, right? right. The band the band is who they were. The the way that things sounded are that what they are it's hard to imagine you say like oh things would have been different if this guy or, or it would have been in place obviously they would because he's a different player has a little bit different style etc but i think you you kind of hit the nail on the head where um those guys were all amazing players but they were truly enhanced by the production and the the stylistic choices of the um the mixing the the way that they were recorded the placement of the of the um microphones etc it's one of those situations where sometimes you just have everything line up you know the stars align i guess and it just works out so well so it's hard to judge i mean he only had one real release with the band so it is really hard to judge what his legacy or or what his future would have been um had he not been so wrapped up in the you know the drug scene so exactly yeah what i find 
what I find funny about that whole thing with Steven and a drug scene and getting fired for being on heroin is like, you know, it's like, okay, you get Axl Rose, you get Slash, and then you get this, this band meeting and say, all right, dude, you're fired, you know, and mm-hmm. you're fired, you know, because you're on heroin. And then, you know, he's like, well, you're on heroin too. <laughs> so are you but it's all and, you know, in in the person's ability to right. to handle function. it and exactly. function yeah so it, it's we, just we one of those funny that. things yeah we, we i mean we've mentioned that with other people in the past and, I, and we're probably going to mention it a little bit later here too um but before that uh, uh the second drummer for guns and roses matt sorum um he played on use your illusion one and two and the spaghetti incident and you know around the time that the band was falling apart because of their internal struggles he was the only one that was kicked out technically he got into an argument with axel rose um you know really just about where the band was the state of of everything um with you know slash and izzy and every everybody basically leaving not sure what the, what they were going to be recording etc there's so much chaos at that time and you know it boiled down to basically Axel Rose said, are you going to quit? And he said, no, I'm not going to quit. And he said, okay, well then you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he was, he was the only one in that situation that was, did, that did not walk away of his own volition. Yeah. I, I like Matt. I, I, I think Matt's an extremely talented drummer. A lot of people sit there and say that he's just this, this, you know, snare and bass kind of guy. I, I don't agree with that. Um, I think he's an extremely talented drummer. I think the performance that he laid out on Use Your Illusions uh, 1 and 2 were, were, they were great. I mean, they were fine. I don't see anything, you know, uh, to criticize about it. You know, people can say, well, it wasn't the same as Appetite. Well, no, it wasn't. Different drummer. The whole and, album wasn't the same. Exactly. I mean, so both you, albums you, were not the nothing same. Nothing sounded the same. So I'm not going to sit there and compare, oh, you know, well, Matt was just bleh. No, he wasn't. It, it, the performances that he put on the album were good, and he played kick-ass drums live. I, I think mean, I, it's so. one of those situations where he came in to a band that was in flux in a lot of ways. Even even at the time of Use Your Illusion and One and Two, they, there were there was some flux there. And you have, I mean, if you listen to those albums, they're extremely eclectic. So they're all over the place. Yeah, they, <laughs> there's no consistency. So for him to step in there and be able to play in all of those those styles, etc. I mean, I I've always thought he did a great job as a follow up drummer because Use Your Illusion One and Two are nothing like Appetite for Destruction. So no, it's 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 hard to to say. Oh, you know, yeah, he's not the same as Steven Ether. No, he's not. And you know, that's just, that band was just constantly in chaos. So it's hard to tell. You know, the good thing is, is that basically Slash and Duff and him, Matt, went on to form Velvet Revolver. Um, and that, that, that band was, it's, it's funny. It, it, it was definitely very similar to how Audio Slave is is the perfect meld between Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine. Velvet Revolver sounded like Guns N' Roses mixed with Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. And 
it, it, it's it's weird how that works because Kushner, Dave Kushner, the other guitar player, had nothing to do with either of the other two bands. But yet, you know, he's the rhythm guitar player, and you know, him him and Slash made a good team together, and. You know, Slash is Slash, and Slash is going to sound like Slash. But Slash doesn't sound like Guns N' Roses Slash when he's in, you know, uh, the Conspirators. He sounds like Slash, you know. But what I'm trying to get at is that it's just amazing how uh, Velvet Revolver had that thing about them that said, oh, this is, is this Guns? Is this Stone Temple Pilots? No, it's a perfect blend. Yeah. Um, so Matt, Matt, had a had a good gig with them as well and that lasted you know uh what a couple albums uh maybe what um 10 years two, i think it was yeah it was two albums and yeah they went on a little bit longer than their their album cycles because they were they went into that period where they were looking to find a new singer they said they had found a new singer they didn't you know all that stuff so i think it was maybe between five and ten years yeah, um, so it's it's not bad. I mean, yeah. I, I like the the first album was great. I loved the first album. Yeah, it was better than the second one. Um, and what's funny is that song "Fall to Pieces." Um, you know, that's a it's a very similar kind of style of song to "Sweet Child of Mine" to some degree. A little a little more ballady, a little slower than than "Sweet Child." But Slash had given that song to or or had presented the song to Axel uh, in between, I guess it was after Spaghetti Incident, um, when they were getting ready to make another album. Mm-hmm. And uh, Axel turned it down. He said, no, he didn't want it. He didn't like it what, for whatever reason, which is funny because now, you know, they play Velvet Revolver songs on stage, <laughs> yeah. but they don't play, they don't play Fall to Pieces. They play, um, uh, what's it? Uh, Slither. Slither. They play yep. Slither. So, yeah, it's one of those weird things. So, so I mean, basically, he went on to have a, a fairly successful career with a lot of different people. You know, he's never had one mainstay band. He's one of those guys that plays with a lot of different people. I think he's done, uh, you know, 14, 15 studio albums. So, you know. I think he's still, with the cult now, isn't he? Uh, he might be. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about that. All right. Well, since we were talking about them, uh, we talked about Velvet Revolver, and we touched upon Stone Temple Pilots. Let's talk about Scott Weiland and his tenure with Stone Temple Pilots. Um, you know, we all know Stone Temple Pilots broke out of the grunge scene of San Diego <laughs> in 1992, and uh, they were they were like uh, just as big at the time, I guess. Not just as big. They were right up there almost with Pearl Jam. But Pearl Jam had just for some reason hit another level and took off. Um, but Stone Temple Pilots' first album was amazing. Uh, was it Core, I think it was called. And that album, you know, really put them on the map. And, and Scott Weiland, who was obviously a big part of that, um, they go on to have this long career. And, you know, between one thing and another, drugs takes a hold of you and Scott with different altercations with members of the band, specifically the DeLeo brothers, you know, uh, was in and out of the band and like he would quit, disappear for a while, come back. Oh, let's do another tour. Let's do another album, disappear, make some records with another band, some other musicians. And then finally just the band had enough and, uh, 
the, in 2002, I was like, you know what? We're done. And they, uh, they, they, it wasn't really a firing so much as they just fell apart. And then eventually, you know, they got back together and then he got officially fired in 2013 after 21 years. That's one of those weird cases where he's so synonymous with the band that, you know, I guess maybe modern fans don't even realize that, or I would say old fans that don't know of the modern era, maybe don't even realize that they're still playing with Jeff Gutt as their, their singer. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, for the longest time, I didn't realize that, you know, I knew about their, uh, you know, his break from the, the band, him joining Velvet Revolver, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I guess because I wasn't a huge fan of Stone Temple Pilots in general, um, I was a little shocked to, to, to know about some of their history later. I never realized that Chester Bennington joined the band and that, you know, there's that whole connection between him and Scott Weiland and then their, their suicides, etc. Um, or I say suicides, accidental overdose, but you know, you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's, you know, some connections there, but, that was that to me was a weird one, you know. Some some members of of certain bands, you think that's their band. It seems weird when they would get fired. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a major from, one we're gonna talk about later, but yeah, right. Yeah, getting fired from your own band is just kind of weird, you know, when you start it. But you know, in in some cases, like Scott's case, it was just one of those things where the where the, you know. Robert and Dean DeLeo just kind of got tired of it. But it was weird because they got tired of it, but they, they like, they had a, or before Jeff Gutt, before Chester Bennington, they had another singer that was in their band. I don't remember his name. And they tried to play with him and it did not work out. And it didn't work out because they, they, they they just didn't click on that level and like uh, the song I remember specifically the song Hickory Dichotomy you know when when I think it was Robert DeLeo or Dean I can't remember which one presented it to the singer whoever it was um, he he didn't understand what it meant he didn't understand the whole quote unquote dichotomy of the song and and it was just like I don't I don't get this and so they basically fired him before he even became a, a member. It was just like no, this is not going to work out. You mm. know, musical differences. And they brought Scott back in and they, they started playing a song and it, and it was just like boom, Scott understood it. That was their connection. That was the the the, the connection between the Deleo brothers, Eric Kretz, and and Scott Weiland. Those four guys had a chemistry that only those four guys can have. So it took a lot, you know, when Chester Bennington, you know, for them to blend together. And then now Jeff Gutt. And Jeff Gutt fills the, the, the role perfectly. Uh, I don't want to call it a role. Fills the position perfectly. He he gets them. So it, it is uh, one of those weird things. When, when, you ha- when, you, when your band chemistry is that way, it, it, the way you feel like, how can you fire someone? It's because it just gets to a point where it's like, no, we can't deal with this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. You know? 
I always thought it was interesting that they had a, a self-titled album in 2010 and then another self-titled album in 2018 when they had <laughs> Jeff Gutt as the singer. I just thought that was interesting. It's, <laughs> you know what? It, I, it's funny. I, if I was in a band, I would just name the album the same shit every time <laughs> just to annoy people. <laughs> you know? Like like uh, Led Zeppelin, they just... They put out the fourth album, and you know what's the name of the album? There is no name. Well, it's Led Zeppelin Four. No, it's not Led Zeppelin Four. Well, it's the symbols. No, it's not the symbols. There is no title. It's untitled. No, it's not untitled. There's no title. <laughs> you know, it's like what trolling <laughs> the troll at the top of the mountain. All right. So anyway, uh, so that's Scott Weiland. I mean, it's you know Scott Weiland passed away in 2015. Um, due to drug and alcohol abuse. And as much as they can sit there and say, no, it, it didn't, the autopsy came back. He had drugs in his system. It is what it is. You know, yeah. no one's going to think less of him because basically that's what happens to rock stars, you know. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah. So uh, who's who's the next band you want to talk about? Um, why don't we mention... This is kind of early, I guess, because it is kind of a sore subject to a degree. Um, Michael Anthony with Van Halen. Um, this one I really did not like. I mean, th- this upset me. And obviously Wolfgang is a, is a great player. I love the idea that he got to play with his dad, um, you know, build that connection, actually get to tour with his dad, which is really cool. So it's no slight towards Wolfgang whatsoever. I just hate the way that Michael Anthony was, was kicked from that band. You know, finding out online that he was he was no longer in the band um whatever was going on between him and and eddie where eddie wasn't satisfied with his playing etc did you know did all a lot of the bass work on the last couple albums he appeared on um van halen 3 and uh the best of both worlds so you know it's one of those things that it's it's it sucks because michael anthony was such a huge factor of that band you know his his voice, his background vocals really made a large percentage of what Van Halen sounded like in in both major eras of the band, and you know it just I don't know it's just one of those things where for so long they were presented as the best of buds, and that was that was just the image that they gave. So when you know you see kind of behind the curtain, it it, it hurt in a way. You know. I hate to to put it in, in this way, and I feel bad because I'm, you know, you don't want to speak ill of the dead, right? But the bottom line is, drugs is a motherfucker, and I personally cannot attest to what effects drugs have on a person. I cannot. I've never done drugs in my life. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I've been drunk. I'll, I'll do that. But in terms of, you know, marijuana, cocaine, meth, uh, whatever, you know, ecstasy, none of that. I've never touched it. Now, so I don't know uh, the effects that it has on a person. But we can see from from looking on to the outside in, we can see that Eddie Van Halen has some extremely erratic behavior. Over the years, right? 
And this was one of those things where you, you're with a guy for however many years, and then you turn around and say, well, I played bass on all the albums. I had to show him what to do. Well, you know, as a band, like when I was, when I was in a band and playing bass, and I, and, and I came in and these guys had a song already written, they came up to me and said, okay, hey, this is, this is the bass line that we came up with. They showed me what to do. But it was well, pretty standard. Fears. That happens right. with a lot exactly. of exactly. That, that, that's 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 the point I'm trying to get to. They showed me. All right, this is what we're playing. This is the key. This is what we're in. You know. And then basically, I had the root notes. So now it's on me to either expand beyond the root notes or leave it that way and just find a pocket with those root notes. Okay. And on some songs, I was able to expand it and, and really find a good groove. In other songs, I just kept hitting the, the core note because I felt that that was all the song needed. We, we've all heard what Michael Anthony has done over the years. I mean, he's got some exceptional playing. And he's done exceptional stuff on stage with the band. Okay, so to, for, for Eddie to put him down in such a way publicly, it, I'm sure it was hurtful to him. Obviously, Absolutely. you know, and then, you know, to get to say, well, if you want to play with us, you know, we're not going to give you any credit. We're not going to give you any songwriting credits and we're definitely not going to give you money for it. You know, and then on top of that, you know what, why don't you go ahead and sell me your, your rights to the songs because, you know, you don't deserve them type of thing. I mean, whatever the, whatever the, the those, the comments were and whatever the, the decisions were made to basically strip Michael of his Van Halen rights was just, that was just dastardly really yeah i agree it's just it's messed up i mean that that's his legacy i mean nothing's going to take away from you You, they're not they're not taking away the tracks like they try to do with randy rhodes and or with lee kerslake and and bob daisley and on on the first two ozzy albums but you know so we're always going to hear michael's playing that's a good thing but you know to to sit there and, and and downplay his contributions was just shitty you know 100 percent. yeah and it, it didn't do any favors to you know the the other band members perception either it, it just it was a nasty business and it, yeah. It, yeah it just it's you know obviously we we love van halen we love eddie van halen um and you can't judge based on one thing but that was that was harsh that was that was really hard to see right and this has nothing to do with wolfgang wolfgang is an exceptionally talented musician yeah you know and um he i just read the other day he got nominated for a grammy that's incredible congrats to him yeah you know so you know good on him and he he had nothing to do with the whole fight between michael and eddie and the and the 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 van halen band so you know this has nothing to do with with wolfie but, Again, yeah. I thought it was very cool that he got the chance to to go on tour and play with his dad. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So right, and, and Valerie Bertinelli, who's Eddie's ex wife, she said if it wasn't for that, for if it wasn't for you know Eddie wanting to play with Wolfie, there would not have been a, ban- a Van Halen reunion. So mm, yeah. let, let's put it at that. Okay, she said, look, either Eddie plays with Wolfie or he doesn't play with anybody. At this point, and that was it. And they, they got Dave back. Van Halen was reborn. They they put out you know uh, one studio album, one live album, and then you know Eddie's health went south from there. So 
Yeah. We got we got one last hurrah. We'll put it that way. Absolutely. All right. So, um, Michael Anthony, that was that was that was a tough one. All right. Um, let's pick on somebody else here. Who are we going to talk about? Um, all right. I'm going to talk about someone that you're probably not as familiar with as I am. Um, and then you can talk about someone that I'm not as familiar with as much as you are. I'm going to talk about Dave Abruzis from Pearl Jam. Um, we don't talk about Pearl Jam much on this on this show because uh, they're not really metal, even though we do talk about hard rock. But we don't talk per- much Pearl Jam, that alternative side of hard rock and metal. But Dave Abruzis was fired from from Pearl Jam four months before the release of the Vitology album in 1994, I think it was. And uh, I got to say, it was a shock to me. Um, But at the same time, when I found out what the reasons were, then it kind of made sense almost to some weird degree. So for people who don't know, um, Pearl Jam had a drummer named Dave Cruzen who basically stepped aside from the band, decided he did not want to tour, did not want to have the, the rock and roll lifestyle, and he left the band before the release of their first album, 10. Dave Abruzis, who's actually in all the videos, oh well, no, he's not in the first video, he's not in the live. Um, he's in Even Flow and, and Jeremy. He's the drummer that people know, um, but he wasn't the one on the first album. But Dave Abruzis played on uh, Versus, and he played on Vitology. Um, and he was, that's, before the release of Vitology, Pearl Jam got into a war with Ticketmaster. And they refused to play concerts at any venue that Ticketmaster had controlling interest in, if you want to put it that way. And so they basically had to try and put together a tour doing shows at literally what I would consider second-rate venues. You know, that, that, that Ticketmaster had nothing to do with, had no contract with whatsoever. And to, to go across the country, to try and go across major cities and put a tour together like that is extremely difficult. If you're not, you know, in, in nowadays, if you're not on Live Nation's good, good side or any of those places, it's really hard to do. It's either a really small place or no place at all. So when that war happened, Dave Abruzis told the band, he said, guys, why don't we just play? Let's just go out there and play. And the, the other four guys had put down their foots and said, uh, the, foots. The, the other four guys put down their feet and said, no, we're not playing if it's got anything to do with Ticketmaster. And that was one of the personality conflicts. There were some other ones that they claimed that Dave was uh, a rock star or leading the rock star lifestyle where they were more a little more serious, the other four guys. So basically, they just said, you know what, you're out. And out he went. Then they got Jack Irons, the original drummer for Red Hot Chili Peppers, for a long time. And then they got Matt Cameron, who was the drummer for Soundgarden. And uh, Matt Cameron is also the drummer in Temple of the Dog, which is basically Pearl Jam now. Yeah, I'm not not super familiar with Pearl Jam. Uh, They were one of those bands that I remember, you know, kind of early Saturday Night Live. I remember seeing them and thinking, ah, oh, you Dude, know, that was a great performance on Saturday Night Live. It was, um, I, you know, I thought like, you know, that wasn't 
that, that was pretty good. And that, then, I, I don't know, I just never really clicked with Eddie Vedder's singing style. Um, but some of those early, like the stuff off of 10, um, I think it was Vitology was the other one that I, I know a little bit from. But, like, you know, they just weren't a huge aspect in, in my musical library. So it's hard. It's hard for me to really comment on too much, but yeah, I understand that. Like that, that's one of those things where, if the, if you're not on board with the sentiment, it's it's uh, it's not going to go well for you. Yeah, it, I mean, inner band politics when you get to be that big, uh, is is can can be real uh, frustrating for 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 the people involved. I mean, for for people out there who don't know this bands once they form and they release an album they have to be a, a corporation they they're incorporated as you know for whatever whatever band you know Aerosmith it's Aerosmith Inc right uh nowadays it's probably a lot of LLCs out there but you know they they have the five members of the band are the five voting members um they are the, basically the board of directors of the band and so th- that it's just that's the way it works. That's why there's so many legal things. So when someone gets fired, you know you'll you'll see a, a band member get fired, and then obviously their face no longer appears on the next album. But then they re- get replaced, and you, the person who replaced them never appears on an album. Let's put it this way: like um, Bon Jovi when they fired Alex John Such. They never had a bass player appear on an album cover until, God, I think it was the 2000s when they officially named uh, the, the bass player that's in the band now their bass player. I mean, it's insane because they basically reformed a corporation and he becomes uh, a full-time member. And so the point being is when you have these internal arguments that like Dave Abruzis was having with Pearl Jam, you know, they basically turn around and say, okay, we're going to vote four to one. You're out of the band and that's it. You know, and sometimes the manager is the, is the deciding factor. If you have an even number of players in the band, you know, mm-hmm. like when it's, you know, it's 50, 50, sort of like what would happen with Van Halen, you know? So, yeah. So Dave, Dave, uh, suffered that. Now the worst thing about the whole thing with Dave and I, I kind of screwed. I, I, well, the worst thing about Dave in the whole situation is, that when Pearl Jam got elected to the to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they left Dave's name off of the ballot. They oh, named wow. Dave Cruzen, and they named Matt Cameron. And that's screwed up because Dave played on one album. Yeah, it was their biggest album. It's or I don't even think Ten was their biggest album. I think uh, Versus was their biggest album. But you know, Dave Cruzen played on on the album. And left and never had anything to do with Pearl Jam again. Dave Abrazis played, you know, did three tours, two and a half albums, if you want to look at it that way, and, you know, countless appearances and nothing. You know, you know, they basically have tried to erase his contributions. Well, what about it's Jack kind of, Irons? Was he was he put in? He was not put in. Um, See, that's and, messed that up was, too, because he, he appeared on two albums and then he played one song on Vitology. You know the thing with Jack Irons, I, uh, but by that time that Jack was in the band, their, their, I guess their 
popularity went down. So, I mean, that's not to say it had anything to do with Jack Irons. I just think it was just the way things happened. So, yeah, he was he was not part of the band as the as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think I'm pretty sure that's the way it went down. <laughs> but you know, and I'm wondering if Jack Irons is part of the band with uh, with Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, you know, yeah, gotta, I believe so. Uh, so at least he's in. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So anyway, um, all right. So what do you got? All right. Um, well, let's talk about Anton Kavanen. Uh, he is the original uh, leader, uh, band leader, and and the guy who formed Battle Beast. Um, went on to form Beast in Black, a band we've talked about a few times here. And you know, I, I've always been a big fan. Um, so he he basically around the time of you know, I would say. 2014 I think he said was he was kind of thinking about leaving the band there was a lot of issues between them um, you know some stylistic decisions that were being thrown around that they didn't agree upon uh, you know just general disinterest or not disinterest general discontent in the band and um, around 2000, February of 2015 they they pretty much just said this is your last show, um, you're out of the band. So to go in and play a, a final show <laughs> with the the knowledge that they're kicking you out of the band, one respect for actually going through and playing, but that sucks. <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, and, and especially when you're the primary songwriter, you're you've been the band leader for all this time. You know, it it that's that's awful. So basically, he left, was disgusted. Uh, you know, those thoughts of "Am I even going to keep playing?" go through your head, and then he turned it around and he said, "You know what? I'm going to form a new band, and it's going to be better." So. I understand that, like, and and honestly, in a lot of ways, I like Beast in Black way more than Battle Beast. But you know, there's there's part of him that Battle Beast was the name that he created. He was like 16, 17 years old. He created that, never trademarked it because, you know, when you're young, you don't really think about that kind of thing. Um, hopefully, newer musicians are kind of more business minded in that way and protect themselves. But he didn't. So when he was kicked out of the band, um, he didn't get to take that name with him. And so, you know, he he created Beast in Black, which is, again, based on the same uh, fiction, uh, Berserk. Uh, uh, there's a Japanese manga called Berserk that he kind of based it off of. But, um, yeah, that's that's a tough situation. Like I, I have a lot of respect for going out and being a professional in the in the face of, you know, being kind of unceremoniously thrown out. That is weird. I I, I don't know how I would handle. Well, that's not true. I know how I've, I've I've handled similar situations like that before in the past, and I've I've been quote unquote professional. Um, you know, I was <laughs> I was uh, unceremoniously fired from my own baseball team that I managed, and I'm like, how does that work if First of all, this is not a corporation. Two, I, you know, this is my team. 
you know, like you guys play for the Mets, my my Met team in in Miami. I manage it. You're firing me as a manager. I could do whatever I want. So it ended up being where we just dissolved the team, and I joined their team because they said, "Look, we don't we we like you as a as a as a person. We like you as a player. We just don't like you as a manager." Okay, I played with them for one season. And I was like, "Yeah, I can't do this." <laughs> uh, this is why I manage now because I can control my playing time. Um, so anyway, enough being said, that is a weird situation with with um, Battle Beast because you know you're going to go on stage and perform all, in front of all these people, and knowing that's your last show because the four guys behind you are going to fire you. That's weird, you know, but it, from, from what I can tell, everything, I guess, worked out in a way. And I, I beast in black is pretty badass to me. I like them. I like them better, honestly. Um, cause I, I mean, I was a fan of battle beast before, but once I heard beast in black, uh, it blew it away to me. So I would say, in a, in a lot of ways, they've become more successful. They've re- just recently released their third album, and um, it's so far their most successful of the three. They released some music videos to go along with it, and things have been going well. So I would say he's doing pretty well. Hey, there you go. I mean, like I said, I, I've I've from what I've heard of, of Beast and Black, you know, more power to them. They're, they seem to be doing real well. I, I like their style of music. They're, I mean, they're power metal right for the most part so mm-hmm. it is it's pretty cool stuff i could tell you that all right so um switching gears now uh, but we're staying in europe somehow so that's just weird that way um def leopard fired pete willis in 1982 83 ish yeah during the recording of pyromania 82 right and um so he was fired for excessive drinking that hampered his guitar playing. Um, again, this is one of those things like with Metallica. It's like, hey, you know what? We're drunks, but you're worse drunk. You know, and it's like Steve Clark was probably worse than Pete Willis, but I, I guess Steve Clark knew how to be able to show up and play. You know, and that's just the thing. I mean, they all drink in England a lot, especially these musicians. So it, it hampered his playing enough where the rest of the band said. We're gonna we're gonna get rid of this guy, and he was replaced by Phil Collin, who Phil Collin has been there ever since, and Def Leppard obviously went on to you know mega storm, and you know they're still around today, so through good and bad, and through a lot of uh, what's this what's that word tragedy that, that has befallen the band, but they've been able to come out the other side, so that's pretty cool. Um, what do you know about good old Pete? Um, so Pete Willis was only in through 82. Um, so what he, he was on what the first three albums, uh, first three albums, right. And the EP. So, so, I mean, he had a pretty like for our guest first. Yeah. Cause he did appear on Pyromania, right? He was, he was fired during the recording of it. Right. Right. So, I mean, those are three of their, to me most impactful albums it's really too bad that that he you know couldn't go on with them but i'm obviously phil collin has is a great player has you know filled that that spot very well um it's it's just one of those cases yeah just like you said like some people can handle it 
better than others. And unfortunately, much like uh, Steven Adler, who we talked about, it just became a hampering problem. You know, like his playing suffered. And there reaches a point where you, you just can't do that anymore. So, I mean, to be honest, I got to tell you, those first three albums are my favorite Def Leppard albums. So oh, yeah. That's, Same for me. That's I mean, really I, too bad. I like some songs of Hysteria, but really it, 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 it stops right there. Yeah. For the most part. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the, the later stuff they did from like the, the 90s on. Because I really only like their 80s catalog. So right. that's, yeah, that's, that's too bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, for, for, you know, for what it's worth, uh, Pete is no longer in the music business. Um, he, he did a, a couple albums after he was let go. He joined Gog Magog, which I think had, uh, Paul Deano in it or, or some of the guys that was it Dennis Stratton from Iron Maiden. It's, it's, that's his career was short lived basically. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think going right off of that, since you mentioned Gog Magog and some of the players in that, well, why don't we talk about Paul Diano, Dennis Stratton, and Clive Burr uh, real quick? Because, you know, all three of them were let go of, of Iron Maiden within a pretty short amount of time. Um, you know, Paul Diano, obviously the lead singer of the band. Um, you know, played from 1977 to 1981. Um first two albums which there's a lot of fans that they're the that's their only two albums they enjoy from iron maiden um you know for me for both of us we we love bruce so and you know i love those first two albums and and i wouldn't want to hear them any other way than what the way they were done with paul diano i mean i would love to hear bruce record some of those songs again but but the paul diano's voice on those albums is just perfect for the time um but you know it got to the end of his time in the band and his cocaine and amphetamine abuse along with uh heavy drinking really led to his departure um they were they had to cancel a bunch of gigs he he was in enabled or unable to perform a lot of times and uh it just they that was it like they they needed to find a new singer um, so that's, that's a case of, unfortunately, you know, his career ended, um, with Iron Maiden at that point, but he went on to, you know, form Deano for, I, I guess it was like three or four years, played in Gog Magog with some, you know, he played with Clive Burr, he played with Neil Murray, uh, Pete Willis, who we just mentioned, and Yannick Gares. So, you know, some, some other Iron Maiden guys, really. And he's done several other projects. He did, uh, you know, um, the original Iron Man, I think it was what it was called, with uh, Dennis Stratton. Um, you know, he's played, what Praying Mantis was one of his bands. He did Killers. He played, I mean, he's been pretty active up until just recently when his health problems kind of um, took him out of the music business. So he's, what, what, is, what is exactly wrong with him now? He has some kind he, of... Um, uh... It's not diabetes, but he has some issues with his legs. And, and actually, I just saw a video recently of him getting uh, massage therapy on his legs so he can, you know, get them to have better circulation. Mm. I can't remember what the what the disease is that he has or, or the condition that he has, but uh, he's he's it's rough on him right now. 
Yeah, it's really too bad. Um, but he did stay very active for a long time. Never really kind of hit that same stride as, as, you know, a band as big as Iron Maiden. Um, but at least he got to, you know, kind of live a music life from from then on. Um, you know, Clive Burr, we just mentioned. Uh, I think his, you know, his contributions in the band are some of my favorite, to be honest, as far as drums go. Um uh, Number of the Beast, I think we both list as really our favorite Iron Maiden album. There are times where I feel like, you know, I love uh, Somewhere in Time, but, but you know, it's it's hard because I, I, I just keep going back to, to Number of the Beast, and I think everybody knows why. That's a, that's a, that's a front-to-back album, if there ever was one. Um, but... You know, he he did the first two albums. He did Number of the Beast, and then he was let go. Uh, they said like he had some some drinking problems, and you know if if that's really truly the case, or if it was, it was just that he didn't quite fit in or what. But they said he had a lot of problems um, that he wasn't being able to keep up with the pace, etc. And um, you know that's that's their take on it. Um, but there's always kind of been that, that is that true or not kind of feeling about it. Um, you know, he went on to play with trust Stratus, Gog Magog, Elixir, Desperado and praying mantis. Um, you know, not really a huge career after Iron Maiden, which is too bad because he was a, a fantastic drummer. And then yeah, he ended up, he ended up getting sick. Yeah, he passed away a few years back in in 2013, um, and that's you know, that's that's a huge loss for the for the music industry, unfortunately. And uh, Dennis Stratton, you know, he was only on the first album. Um, he was a, he was a guy that you know he had a a very good contribution to the first album with his playing, but very much clashed with with Steve Harris. And you don't want to clash with Steve Harris if you want to stay in Iron Maiden. <laughs> so um, that that was kind of the thing was that he, he had a different take on where he thought the band should go. And, um, you know, it, at least all I can say is at least he, he brought in Clive Burr. So he does have that contribution as well. But... Not much, not much there. Other than he just he really clashed. He had some stylistic differences. I think you have a comment you want to say about that one. Um, but what do you think? What are your feelings on these three guys? Well, it, it's funny that the three guys that we're talking about were all on the first album, mm-hmm. and so that, that that tells you something. They all did Iron Maiden's first album. Clive Burr is an exceptional drummer. Um, you know, between one three and another, Steve Harris has this incredible driving force that really is what propelled Iron Maiden to, to, to the heights that they're at. Um, and then coupled that with Rod Smallwood in management, I mean, if you, if you were not able to stay on the train, you, you, were, you were kicked off. That's, that's just the bottom line. Dennis Stratton had, uh, you know, uh, conflicts with Steve. Um, he had a certain way he thought the band should go, but this was Steve's band. You were not going to deter Steve. So Dennis was let go. You know, with Paul, Paul, you know, Paul knew his limitations and, and, um, Iron Maiden or, or Steve, 
knew his limitations, and they got to a point where it was it's either if we want to go past this point, we need to get a new singer, and uh, and that's what they did. And they got Bruce Dickinson, and they obviously went way past the point that they were talking about. Um, I don't think that was the same case with Clive. I think what happened with Clive was was more. Um, he couldn't take the pressure of, of the constant touring of, the, of all sorts of things that were going on. And then his personal life with his father getting ill, he had to take care of his father. And so he missed gigs here and there. And that was the thing. They, the guy who, who basically stepped in during his missed gigs was Nico McBrain. So, you know, and Nico was basically on retainer. You know, if, if Clive can't make it, we need you to show up. And that's what happened. And then eventually it just came down to, you know what? We can rely on Nico more than we can rely on Clive. And that's just where it came down to. Part of the perception was that it was a, it was a, an alcohol-related, you know, deficiency in his playing that led him to get fired. He, he denies that. You know, it is what it is. Uh, it's unfortunate he, you know... Uh, his body came down with MS and that's what he ended up uh, passing away from complications due to MS. So, but you know, the band still, you know, they contribute to his, uh, to his foundation and they, they always put together some sort of um, charity work and, and, and a, a benefit for Clive. So that's always been something that Iron Maiden never really left him behind, but they knew that they couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't continue with him. Yeah, it's it's their contributions as as players in the band. I think are are great. Um, yeah, but I mean, obviously, Iron Maiden went on to bigger and better things in a lot of ways. So it's a bittersweet kind of situation. All right, so we're going to um, wrap up this topic today with one last person now that doesn't mean we're not going to broach this topic again because there's so many more names out there and there's still some pretty big bands out there that we can talk about um so we're going to end it today on one player who basically or one musician artist whatever you want to call him who i some people would say had a bigger career as a solo artist than he did in the original band and that is ozzy osbourne um, we all know Ozzy. I mean, if, if you don't know who Ozzy is at this point, uh, you just go back to your hole and, and stop listening because <laughs> I mean, everyone knows who Ozzy is and everyone should know the history. You know, the guy was in black Sabbath. He was one of the founding members of black Sabbath was with the band for what, 11 years, got fired be- be- because him and Tony just no longer could get along and other, associated problems and then he went on to perform blizzard of oz slash ozzy osbourne band and took off from there i mean it's it's as simple as that what do you have to say about ozzy well i mean ozzy played on eight studio albums um the first six are absolute classics um technical ecstasy was kind of plagued with problems and then he ended up leaving the band and then came back for Never Say Die after they had already written several songs and recorded them with another sam- a singer named Dave Walker. Um, it, you know, he ended up coming back and saying, I don't like any of these lyrics. We're going to change everything. So um, I think that's understandable to some degree. He didn't want lyrics written by the guy who replaced him. 
Uh, so Bill Ward ended up uh, writing, I'm not sorry, not Bill Ward. So Geezer Butler ended up writing new lyrics for the album. And I would say there's one or two good songs on that album. Um, but certainly those last two were not anywhere close to the, the classics that the first six were. Um, so too many problems with drugs and alcohol, uncontrollable behavior, um, you know, just just really spiraling out of control at that point in his life. And the, Black Sabbath had always been known for doing crazy stunts, um, you know, within their band. And, and they set Bill Ward on fire at one point just for a gag, things like that. So, like, for him to be that far out of control and them to feel like they couldn't keep going without, I mean, with him, um, you know, that says a lot. So... Yeah, he, he ended up getting fired, went on to do Blizzard of Oz. Uh, Black Sabbath hired Ronnie James Dio, went on to do Heaven and Hell. And they both ended up, you know, being pretty successful after, you know, after their their split at that time. But it, it is crazy to think that Ozzy was fired from, you know, the one of the bands, that, you know, mentioning kind of going back to that, that um you know, Scott Weiland, like we talked about, or even Duff, Dave Mustaine, you know, like help, you know, guys that went on to have kind of bigger careers in a way, you know, everybody knows Black Sabbath now, but I think Ozzy, you know, at the height of his, his career with, you know, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman, you know, in a way he was bigger than Black Sabbath. Oh, I, I absolutely think so. I mean, I mean, Ozfest. There's not Black Sabbath Fest. <laughs> Black Sabbath played Ozfest, mm-hmm. so that that tells you right there. No, Ozzy was definitely bigger than Black Sabbath. Now, was it immediate? No, but when you think think about it, I mean, when Heaven and Hell came out with Ronnie James Dio, Black Sabbath came out with that album first because they wanted to get the, the jump on Ozzy. But once. Uh, Blizzard of Oz came out and Crazy Train took off and then The Diary of Mammy came out. I mean, those two albums are classics. Yes, Heaven and Hell is a classic and yes, Mob Rules is a classic, but they're nowhere near as classic as as the first two Ozzy albums. And then from there, Ozzy has Bark at the Moon. He has Ultimate Sin. That's a huge album for Ozzy. Ultimate Sin was enormous MTV album. And again, we're... we're strictly talking on statistics and and how many people listen to these albums etc you know the the sales etc from there well, but even but if you even think about the 80s in that mid 80s time what happened to sabbath sabbath you know ronnie james dio quits you know then then uh ian gillen joins and he ends up leaving and then you know Tony, basically, it's Tony by himself by by the time the mid '80s come around. So Black Sabbath was relatively non-existent. Uh, even they were there, but they were nowhere near uh, uh, anything that they were before. And and Ozzy's out there having the time of his life, headlining shows. You know, making stars out of Anthrax, making stars out of Motley Crue, making stars out of Metallica. I mean, it's it was one thing after another. Ozzy was enormously bigger than Black Sabbath. Yeah, absolutely. I'm what I was getting at though was that it's not it's not to take away anything that Black Sabbath did or their legacy or their ability as players or anything like that. It just simply is what it is. Ozzy went out and he became a bigger act than 
than Black Sabbath at that time. And people, I think, in hindsight, think you know of Black Sabbath in a in a big way of who they are, their contributions to metal, you know, being those those forefathers of metal. And th- we see that now. But if you think of it in the context of the time period, Ozzy was bigger than Black Sabbath at that time for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I get I like Black Sabbath, but Black Sabbath to me. I, it's so it's so hard to even you know you listen to the old Black Sabbath and you hear the Ozzy Black Sabbath then you hear the Dio Black Sabbath they're two different bands and they acknowledge that you know and you know it's it's two different styles really because the 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 classic Black Sabbath with Ozzy even though they started heavy metal per se they were not really a heavy metal band the no, Ronnie they James they were Dio the forebears that, that's why I, right. I always say it that way. Because they exactly. just—they really weren't a heavy metal band, right? And the and the Ronnie James Dio Black Sabbath was a heavy metal band, you know. And 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 the Ian Gillen Black Sabbath was a heavy metal band. So it it it, it goes to show the different styles of each of the of the eras of Black Sabbath. So, all right. Well, um, like we said. We have more names to talk about, and we'll talk about it another time, another episode. But we we had, I think, we had a good conversation with a bunch of good p- people that we were talking about and the unfortunate circumstances that led to their departures from their original bands. Um, with that said, today's big four is classic lineup reunions, and I think that's going to be a pretty interesting list. Um, because classic lineup reunions, we, we've got some, some uh, what do we call that? We're stretching the boundaries on these lineups. So um, I, I'll go ahead and go first on this one. I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like we, when we talked about this before, we kind of prefaced that, you know, some of these were not exactly the original like classic lineup. There may be one member that didn't return, etc. Um, but basically that, that classic lineup. Um, so for, for me, number four, I picked heaven and hell. Um, technically it's, it's kind of a stretch because they, they were under the moniker heaven and hell. Um, but this was the Ronnie James Dio black Sabbath lineup. And, um, so one thing that I, I loved about it was, you know, they, they had gone all this time with there was this animosity between Dio and 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 Ozzy where, you know, when they were asked to, to play Ozfest and they agreed, you know, Dio left the band. Um, there was several instances of them just not getting along and always kind of a, in a respectful way, I guess, but at the same time. You know, just not wanting, you know, the egos, they clash. You know, they don't, they don't want to be part of each other's world. So, um, when when heaven and hell formed, and you know, gave that opportunity for for that classic lineup of of Black Sabbath. Obviously, uh, the second classic lineup, because I would say there's two classic lineups of Black Sabbath. Would you agree? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, because... Because they're two different bands in a large way. 
Yeah, like 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 I said, yeah. There's heavy metal, and then there's the the classic, the original you know, blues, yeah, blues, the, the original lineup. Um, so yes, there are two different eras. Uh, well, there's like seven different eras of Black Sabbath. It's <laughs> like 45. This is, the, this is the second classic era. So yeah, I, I'm good with that. Yeah, it's 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 an oddity in this kind of discussion because yeah, obviously the classic, the original lineup of Black Sabbath is you know the Aussie version but then the the Dio version really is too because to a lot of fans that was the the lineup that they grew up with too so it's it's an odd one but but I think it stands um in heaven and hell they released one album before unfortunately uh Ronnie James Dio ended up passing from from cancer um but it was a really nice reunion it was very cool to see they did one release as black sabbath as well so you know at least there's two and then obviously the three albums that they released along with their live album which is questionable at best but regardless it, it it's a really fun reunion and i'm glad it happened before dio passed away um, my number three is van halen which is the 1996 dlr reunion and the reason i i say this is it's it's not my favorite and it's but it but it was huge it was impactful because nobody expected it to happen you're talking about the the me wise magic van halen yes so they they you know they kind of wrapped things up with with Sammy Hagar you know un, in f- a nasty way i guess uh and then they were re- working on recruiting a new singer and then it w- was it the VH1 music awards or MT i'm sorry MTV music awards um uh yeah i think that's what it was yeah david lee roth comes out and just shocks the world that you know he was he was back in Van Halen, not technically because they yeah. they, they uh, didn't tell him that that wasn't a permanent gig. They even recorded <laughs> an, a, a, a song with him, um, but actually, was it two songs? It was Me Wise Magic and uh, there was an. They, uh, yeah, I believe there was two songs. Can't get this stuff no more. I think it was the other song. Something like that. Yeah, uh, you know, two pretty good songs, and then you know. They ended up hiring Gary Sharon, um, but it was it was huge at the time, and and so in that regard, I'm not saying it's like the best thing that ever happened. It was just it was massive, you know. You go back and watch those videos and, and watch the reaction to David Lee Roth coming out, and it's just it's it's a, it sucks that it didn't end up being a real reunion. So anyway, they ended up reforming with him later on as we mentioned with uh with wolfie on on base so there was a second reunion but i just thought that first time was i mean going back and watching it i remember seeing it when i was a kid i was about 10 years old and i was i to me it was shocking because i had grown up with with sammy as the lead singer and then i went back and that was that was the other reason why i picked this was because i ended up picking up their their ca- back catalog with David Lee Roth on vocals because of seeing that. Oh wow, okay, that's cool. Um so my number 2 is Judas Priest with Rob Halford returning on vocals. Um you know, there was a a long gap between Painkiller and his return on um Angel of Retribution. Uh there's a a really nice story uh that he tells 
in his autobiography about that time in between and why he quit the band, how he was feeling, um, you know, kind of the unfortunate circumstances of not being able to communicate, um, you know, personal matters of his life and, and trying to find himself and figure things out. And, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome how he came back into the band and they've really found a second life since that point you know angel of retribution to me on my a personal level i feel like was the perfect follow-up to painkiller obviously there's albums in between with ripper owens and and i'm a fan of those where there's a lot of people that aren't but what i love is that you know he leaves in 1990 comes back in what 2001 with the i mean he came out before that but the release of the angel of retribution was i believe 2001 I could right. be wrong. Um, no, you're right. So he, uh, you know, they follow it up with the album that sounds like it logically follows Painkiller. And and I love that. And they've gone on to record some really great albums. Obviously, um, Richie Faulkner's coming to the band. Again, kind of breathes some new life into the band. Um, but but that first reunion you know, with, with Rob Halford bringing him back and bringing back the lineup from Painkiller, which was mostly the classic lineup. Um, obviously, uh, Scott Travis was different than what some people might consider the, the true classic lineup with David or Dave Holland. Um, but to me, Scott Travis um, just was, he's a cut above and kind of like having those, most of those core members there, I was completely fine with that that particular reunion. And then my number one, I think most people will guess this, uh, is Iron Maiden with the return of Bruce and Adrian. Um, you know, they basically just added Adrian into their, their guitar lineup at the time with Yannick being his replacement. But, um, you know, they kept all three guitarists with Neil Murray as well. And then, uh, Bruce Dickinson coming back on vocals, uh, replacing blaze Bailey, who was his replacement, um, you know, coming out with brave new world as their first release as a, as a reunited band. That album is amazing. And even people that aren't a huge fan of the modern era of iron maiden still enjoy brave new world it's it has great production it has really great songs it has a renewed vigor and energy about it and it's just a fantastic album and um i remember in what was it 2000 picking up that album and just being so happy and it, it it's that feeling that you know that that nostalgic feeling i remember that I think because I had to think about it, like which one to me was the bigger return, you know, because Judas Priest, obviously, I've I've told said many times that Painkiller is one of my favorite albums, if not my favorite album of all time. And, um, you know, him being back in the band and releasing Angel of Retribution, which I love as well, you know, that was huge. But I remember that feeling and picking up Iron Maiden and, you know, listening to to that album and it just it i think on that level that kind of nostalgic level i i put it a little bit above the the rob halford return fair enough i i like the list can't complain can't uh can't uh argue with it 
Well, I could argue with it because that's what this show is all about, right? <laughs> Not no, argue, I, uh, but debate. A, we're debating. Yeah. No, I, I um, uh, like I said, I, I, I like the list. Uh, I, I agree with most of it. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, you know what? Uh, you can't, you, you can, you know, can't say that. Um, <laughs> it's a good list. <laughs> anyway, I like the list. Um, my list is different, and we only have one crossover technically. Okay. Um, so, which is interesting. Um, all right. So, my number four uh, for classic lineup reunions goes like this. Can I say something before you start? Then, so uh, one thing I have to say is I I do like when our lists don't mesh sometimes because then it gives a little bit more. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. You know, it gives that kind of like. Um, it, it reminds me of things I didn't think about, I guess, is the best way to put it. Correct. And I didn't think of uh, Heaven and Hell. But anyhow, um, so in 2001, after the World Trade Center tragedy that happened in New York City, um, a lot of benefits started happening from different areas of the music industry. And one of them was local New York artists. And... One of the reunions that ended up happening in 2001 was the reunion of Twisted Sisters, something that no one ever thought was going to happen. And the reason was being, or the reason being was because Mark the Animal Mendoza really did not like Dee Snyder anymore. And um, they did get back together. They got back together in the room to do a rehearsal. And their first rehearsal, Mark the Animal Mendoza showed up and said, if D. Snyder mouths off, I'm going to kill this fucker. And he basically brought a gun with him and put it down on top of his amp. <laughs> so that was their first. Uh, <laughs> I did not know that. Together. Wow. Yes. Yeah. He brought a, He he brought a gun with him to to the to the their first rehearsal. But lo and behold, they got along and they stayed together for a. a, a a longer period of time the second time than the first. And they had really successful shows out in Europe. Uh, the United States wasn't as big, but Europe, they were, they were pretty big out there in Europe. So that was, um, that was that reunion. Um, and that was definitely the classic because, uh, AJ Puro was not the original drummer. Um, so, and obviously there was a million different people before D joined the band in the seventies. So, but the classic lineup that everyone knows from, you know, I, I want to rock and we're not going to take it. This is the classic lineup that reunited. But D was the only until... singer that appeared on any album, right? Yes. Okay. D, D, D was the only singer that appeared on any albums. They didn't have a record contract in the seventies or anything like that. They were just a bar band forever. Okay. Um, but, and there was a time where I believe JJ was, was a singer for a short period of time, um, but they needed somebody else. So, yeah, so they were together uh, from 2001 all the way through AJ Pirro's death in 2015. So um, that that tells you, you know, you think about it, that was 14 years, and they were they were only together as a classic lineup for five, I think it was from 80. No, 82 was their first album, so 81 through 87, six years, something like that. So it was it was definitely uh, uh, a a a good classic lineup reunion. All right. So number three is your number two, Judas Priest uh, with Rob Halford coming back to the fold after going about his solo career. Um, not much else I could say more than what you added uh, or with it, what you had to say earlier. Um, for me, Judas Priest was, was definitely one of the bands I grew up on in the early eighties. I was a real big fan. 
Uh, when Rob left, it was kind of like uh, disheartening. But then when I heard the stuff that Fight put out on that first album, I was really excited for Rob. And then I was kind of like, well, what's up with Judas Priest? They hired Ripper. And, you know, the albums were not what I expected. And then they had two albums together. They had uh, two out, two studio albums, two live albums. And then they put together, um, you know, some tours. I did not see the Ripper tours. And then uh, in 2001, Rob came back. So um, that reunion, you know, Angel of Retribution, I don't think I got to see Priest again until 2005. So it was about four, four or five years later. So it was right after, um, oh, it was, it wasn't, no, it was not an Ozfest. It was a solo show. But I don't think they had, or they had come out with, um, uh, Nostradamus just yet. It was just one of those tours they were doing um, to tour. Um, so they did Angel of Retribution. They, they were basically extending that tour out. Anyhow, so that's my number three. So my number two is the original Black Sabbath reunion that happened in 1997. Um, and that was a case of the fans finally getting what they wanted after all these years you know Ozzy's retirement tour in 92 led to Sabbath technically opening for Ozzy and that's when Ronnie James Dio quit and Rob Halford went ahead and sang that show uh, I believe it was in Mesa Arizona if I'm not mistaken and then from 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 1992 because i believe ozzy went and did a, a song or two with sabbath that night they did not play together again until 1997 when ozzy reached out to tony to to uh to see if he wanted to do a couple of songs with oz with ozzy's band uh during ozfest which then said well no, let's do an uh, a black sabbath set and that led to them calling geezer and they kept mike borden on at drums and then later on that year Bill Ward rejoined the fold and and the full-blown reunion happened for Black Sabbath. So I'm happy I got to see that reunion, I believe, in 1999. So that was something that was really cool. Um, And uh, at least I got to see that. So, and then we obviously, we talked about Black Sabbath and Ozzy and all that a little while ago. All right, so my number one reunion of a classic lineup goes to my number two all-time favorite band, Kiss. When Peter, Chris, and Ace Frehley rejoined the band in 1996 at the Grammy Awards, and it was introduced by Tupac, of all people. <laughs> as, they, they, as they reunited, they then toured. It was the biggest tour of 1996 and 97. And then they came out with an album and everything went sideways from there. <laughs> we all know the story about Psycho Circus, Peter Chris going in and out of the band, Ace Freely going in and out of the band. But 1996 was a year to remember for KISS fans in 1997. I mean, it was just amazing if you were a KISS fan getting an opportunity to see the original band. They, they for the most part, they still had it. You know, they, they weren't, Obviously, as old as they are now, 
Paul Stanley still had it vocally, so it was really exceptional to see Kiss back in 1996. So that's my big four classic lineup reunions. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's it's a good list. I'm I'm a little surprised in a way, but then I, I it makes sense as you say because I mean obviously you're a big Kiss fan. That would have been a, a huge moment, and obvi- and it really didn't fall apart until later. So yeah, that's pretty good list. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with the Iron Maiden, and I and I I think I want I would just wanted to go in a different direction because they that was a big reunion for them as mm-hmm. well. Um, but when you think about the 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 impact, specifically more for the New York City area, and I was from New York, even though I, at that time I wasn't living there. You know, Twisted Sister reuniting. I mean, for whatever reason, Twisted Sister has always been a band that has kind of just been like secretly you know it's one of those um like almost like a comfort food type of thing you know it's one one of those bands and artists that you sit there and say yeah i listen to them but you don't really want to admit it <laughs> you know so that that that's what twisted sister is for me um and then obviously you said judas priest but black sabbath was big because i was like you know to see the original black sabbath it, as and really as a heavy metal band because when they came out they played those songs powerfully yeah it, it was definitely something that was impactful and of course kiss you know so yeah and it's all about how it how we perceive it so exactly well that's our big four classic lineup reunions and that's our show for tonight and as a reminder once more if you like what you heard tonight and you want to hear some more check us out wherever you listen to your podcast click subscribe and boom there we are That's right. And don't forget to leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. If you catch us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment. Or if you just want to send us an email, send it to debatingmetal at gmail.com. If you use Spotify, be sure to check out our playlist from all our greatest hits episodes. And remember to tune in to the next episode where we spark up another exciting metal debate. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe. And remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya. (laughs) 